Good morning, and welcome to Midpoint Wednesday. I'm Shelley Reback, your host for WMNF's Mid-Florida, Mid-Week, Mid-Morning Dose of News and Public Affairs with a Local Perspective. You are, of course, listening to WMNF 88.5 FM, Tampa Bay's only independent FM radio, brought to you by you, because we are supported by our generous listeners like you, who keep us commercial-free 24-7. We welcome you to join our conversation during the show by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-443-0885. Now let's start the show. We are all aware of the big, splashy invasions of our rights that the DeSantis administration has accomplished so far. With the 15-week abortion ban, women now have less freedom to manage their reproductive health care. There have been many more voter suppression laws passed, making it harder in Florida to maintain a functioning democracy and easier for the Republican leadership to stay in power in Florida forever. But what about the less flashy things the DeSantis administration has done to chip, chip, chip away at our liberties? Remember the story of the boiling frog? The story that goes, if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will instantly leap out. But if you put it in a pot filled with pleasantly tepid water, and then you gradually heat it up, the frog will remain in the water until it boils to death. Well, the boiling frog is a person who is in a gradually worsening situation without any realization of the peril until it is too late. I'm suggesting that in Florida, we are all boiling frogs now. Little by little, we are losing our most basic freedoms at the hands of the DeSantis administration. Their encroachment on our civil and personal rights is like the death of a thousand cuts. And the place where you can see this incremental loss of autonomy and independence so very clearly is in the area of academic freedom. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because academic freedom in Florida is under attack. It may already be extinct, Over the last two years, the DeSantis administration and his Republican-controlled legislature have tried to make a list now, silence academics from testifying as experts in lawsuits against the state, they've restricted the teaching of critical history studies, they've banned diversity, equity, and inclusion policies in public education and in private companies, but that's a topic for another show. They've imposed surveys of students and professors' political beliefs. They have allowed the governor to take over the Florida Board of Governors of the university system. They've hidden the identities of candidates for university president so they can't be researched. They've canceled universities' relationship with their accrediting agency after the accrediting agency expressed some concern about the prohibition on academics testifying. And they have reformed tenure to make employment less secure for faculty. And I may have forgotten a few other measures. But the upshot of all these restrictive measures has been, and continues to be, to create an atmosphere of concern, if not outright fear, on the campuses of public colleges and universities in Florida. Fear that if you don't comply, or if you don't toe the political line, or if you speak out against DeSantis or these policies and laws, there may be consequences. After all this, the frog is pretty much fully boiled now. We're going to talk about how this repressive atmosphere affects the quality of education, the reputation of Florida schools, and the effect on teaching with my guests today. 
USF history professor Brian Connolly, a member of the USF Faculty Senate. Welcome, Professor Connolly. Thanks. Happy to be here. And education professor Steve Lang, who's president of United Faculty of Florida's USF chapter, which is a faculty union. Welcome, Professor Lang. Good morning. And you can also join our conversation during the show, which means callers, please don't wait until the last few minutes of the show to join the queue, or we just run out of time to take your comments. But give us a call at 813-239-9663, email us at dj at wmnf.org, or text us at 813-433-0885 if you would also like to join our conversation. Uh, let me start with you, Professor Conley. You're a history professor. Have you ever seen such aggressive attacks on academic freedom as those we've seen from this administration in the past? I mean, we've seen this kind of control over academics exercised in, in truly fascist regime, regimes in history, but in the United States? Is it unprecedented? Uh, thanks. Well, I wouldn't say it's entirely unprecedented, but it's not common, right? So some of the places that we can see it are, you know, in one sense, the origins of both the tenure system and modern notions of academic freedom in the United States in the early 20th century when the American Association of University Professors was founded by a group of professors across the country, including, uh, you know, the well-known liberal philosopher John Dewey. And the aim there was to protect several professors who were being fired for their political beliefs. So there was one at Stanford University, there was one at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and they were generally associated with socialism, right? Then, so the AAUP came into being, they defined academic freedom in a 1914 statement, they then revised it and updated it in 1940 and 1970. The other major moment of violations of academic freedom, of course, was McCarthyism, right? So in the 1950s, when professors were being fired for being associated with communism or Marxism. Um, and of course, you can find high profile cases, you know, throughout the 20th century. But those are the two moments, and I'd say that this is certainly a moment, especially in Florida, where we're seeing real resonance with the mid 20th century. It's not the first time in Florida, though, is it? No. Because we've had the John, we had the Johns Commission, didn't we, or the Johns Committee? Yeah, we had the Johns Committee, which was um, you know an offshoot of, of the kind of McCarthyism of the 1950s, was investigating um, you know communists and especially uh, queer homosexual professors and, and having them fired. So yes, that's a very very prominent moment. And do you feel like this moment in time with these restrictions that were, um, were, are being imposed by the DeSantis administration is similar to those historical uh, events that you've just related? I think they're certainly similar, but they come with their own contemporary flair, right? So one of the things is that you'd like to believe, although I'm, you know, I've been a history professor for well over 10 years, and I, I, <laughs> I don't know that we always learn from history, right? But um, you'd like to believe that we would know better, but we don't, right? So, um, so it comes with this contemporary flair. It comes with, and it comes with this set of laws that I think are are different than what we saw in the mid 20th century, right? Where there's being legislated about what we can say and what we can't say. Um, yeah, so I, I do think there's a particular version of what's happening now in, in 2022. Well, let's take these things apart uh, kind of one by one and see how much time we have <laughs> we have to go through the list. And we may run out of time before we run out of the list. But uh, I, the first thing I would like to talk about is the, uh, the Stop Woke Law, uh, because I think that that's really going to be critically influential on the operation of of the universities and colleges in Florida. So let me ask you both, how do you think that will affect, well, let me start with you, uh, Professor mm -hmm. Conley. How do you think that will affect the teaching of history in Florida 
higher education. I mean, uh, people are concerned that schools may get rid of black studies programs. Uh, Will professors like you even be able to teach accurate history of, say, the Civil War or race relations or the Civil Rights Movement? I mean, those are the kinds of things that... um, you know, I know people are concerned about to the extent that they're aware of what's happening with regard to academic freedom. I, I read recently, the other day, that, for example, that UCF, the University of Central Florida's English department, has suspended its anti-racism policy, saying it was now, quote, against the law. And the law that they're referring to is the Stop Woke Act that just took effect uh, July 1st, and it restricts how certain race-related concepts are taught in public schools and in workplace training. And that legislation prohibits uh, colleges and universities, and among others, from discussing many concepts all nebulously floating around this right-wing understanding of critical race theory. And the law bars schools from teaching that any group is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously, or that being born in a certain group carries privileges. And it bars these institutions from inflicting any guilt or psychological distress on people. And I'm not really sure what the penalties for doing that are, but I'm sure that university professors like both of you are are now... Uh, discussing that among yourselves and trying to determine what does that mean for us and and what we do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that it's really having a chilling effect, right? And it's, um, you know, what the procedures are going to be and what the consequences will be are, I think, still unclear, although we're seeing draft regulations from the Board of Governors and guidelines from USF's general counsel recently released. But, you know, one of the things, I mean, there's so many things that I find inherently problematic with the so-called Stop Woke Act. Uh, But one of the ways of thinking about it that is particularly problematic is that it's, you know, it's the legislature and a particular version of the legislature defining what is legitimate academic pursuit and illegitimate academic pursuit based on really faulty notions of how his, how we understand history, how we think about history, right? So there's a way in which, sure, it says about conscious and unconscious racism or sexism, right? But there's this privilege or, or privileging in the, in the legal language that the only racism or sexism or transphobia or anything else that exists is on an individual level, right? And and then you can say, well, that person's bad and, and I guess move on. I don't really know what they want us to do. But that misunderstands entirely how over decades and decades, black and queer and feminist scholars and others have developed you know, systems of knowledge of understanding how racism, sexism, you know, classism, ableism, all these things work. And they rarely, I mean, not rarely, they, they often work at a very conscious and, and explicitly racist level, but they're also built into the structures of American history, of global history. I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore, that they're <laughs> built into the structures of American history. I don't think you're, right. I think under this new law, you know, you're not allowed to say that anymore. And that and that's the thing. And one of the things that happens too in the, at the end of that law, and, and one of the, I think often one of the most concerning things is that last provision where it says that you can't address the idea that ideas like objectivity or hard work or neutrality, there's a few other in the list, are inherently racist or sexist or or whatever, right? And I don't know that anybody's saying working hard is an inherently racist idea, right? But the long history of the United States shows that an emphasis on what the work ethic looks like has been very much attached to property holding right. white men, right? That's 
I would I'm very skeptical or very hesitant. It's hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if someone has their foot on the on your neck. Exactly, right? <laughs> you know? so, but I don't think you're allowed to say that either. Right, and that's right, that's the thing, right? So here I'm protected by the notions and academic freedom of extramural speech, right? I think I'm still protected <laughs> by them. Uh, but you know, one of the things I, there is that this this story becomes that these are just all inherently neutral and objective categories that we should all love, right? And that tells us, in fact, is an ideological position taken by the state and tells us to teach history in a worse and less effective manner than we were doing, right? And that I think that's certainly one of the aims. Well, let, let me bring you into the conversation, <laughs> Professor Lang. You're the president of the faculty union. Yep. What are you hearing from faculty about the Stop Woke Law? <clears throat> well, I'm everyone's against it <laughs> pretty <laughs> Big much surprise. at least our members and stuff um a couple of things uh that i thought while you were talking um there is the provision as i understand it from the law that that gives it teeth is that the university would lose funding if they if their faculty violated um the stop woke act so they the the um, state would lose its performance-based funding or some other kind of funding. So the university is kind of caught in the middle. They're trying to police the faculty mm -hmm. because if the faculty turn out to have done something to violate this, then the university loses money. So they have to figure some way to come down on the faculty or police the faculty. And one of the interesting things, and this will get, I don't want to get too legalistic because we don't know what's going to happen in the courts. Obviously, we've had collective bargaining in Florida for public employees since the 70s. And that was the last constitutional um, and court case result. And so we've, we've had an article on academic freedom in the contract for decades. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read just a little piece of it. But part of it says that um, to speak on all matters of university governance and speak, write, or act as an individual without institutional discipline or restraint. So you're That's in the contract. So your suggestion is that yeah. this law may violate the collective bargaining agreement exactly. that the faculty has with the system. Well, wow, that's very so – is if, that it, the subject of current litigation now? Um I think there is current litigation from UFF statewide over several of these, and they're in different stages. Some of them are in the stage where they're collecting witnesses, and some are in the stage that they've actually filed things because there are three or four bills or parts of bills that are under fire. And it's not just the University of Faculty of Florida. It's our parent organization, FEA, with public school teachers and some independent groups such as ACLU and another strange bedfellow fire uh, have all gotten involved in, in various court cases over the bill or parts of the bill. And yes, you're right. So, if, for example, if a faculty member was told by the university, you can't say that or we're going to, you can't use that book or, or something to that effect, then they would file a grievance. The grievance would go through a step process. If it's not resolved and we think it's a contract violation, it would go to arbitration. And in theory, arbitration would be legally binding if the arbitrator ruled. And I, they just did reinstate one of the professors at UCF for non-renewal over some statement. So then what prevails? 
we don't know. Yeah, that's so, what happens. It's a clash of titans it is. at that point. So you you may end up with a arbitration that disagrees with the law. You may end up um, having some challenge to the law. You may end up in a federal court, not a state court. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there's just all different kinds of legal theories. But one of the things that interested me about what we were just saying about the history um, in general education, this is definitely a problem of the content that you're going to teach. University of South Florida has, and I don't know the exact percentage, but a large number of degrees lead to employment. And so you would be licensed as a teacher, psychologist, accountant, right? whatever. Uh, and in the vast majority, and, and I've dealt with a lot of accreditation issues, and a, and a vast majority of these um, accreditation standards, there are values and beliefs in the standards. And, and sometimes they're very specific. I know in education, the chief school officers of the 50 states called CCSSO list the values and beliefs and dispositions of the values of the teacher candidates so that your program is approved. So your program leads to national licensing or certification. Well, I don't know what the universities would do when their standards require them to have consistency with the values of the profession. In health, like nursing and medicine and things like this, it's part of the content, it's part of the curriculum, and it's part of the standards for program approval. Uh, it's it's so, almost so wait, impossible. If I understand yeah. you, you're suggesting yeah. that yeah. there may be a conflict between oh, this yes. law and the standards that these various accreditation uh, agencies have uh, imposed on various licensure programs. Absolutely. And so you know we've seen a little bit about that <laughs> in the in the clash between um, the Florida or the I should say between the DeSantis administration. <laughs> And the uh, accreditation agency for mm-hmm. the university systems, mm-hmm. um, and it seems like the whole attack on academic freedom in the universities really picked up steam mm-hmm. um, when the academics were going to testify against the DeSantis administration in the big voting rights case, uh, the uh, gerrymandering um, litigation that arose following the census. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the in the connection with the redistricting process, and the University of Florida said to the professors who were going to testify that they couldn't testify against the state since UF was a state institution itself, and that was a conflict. And then the Southern Association of Colleges mm-hmm. and Schools Commission on Colleges, which is U- University of Florida's accreditor, mm-hmm. opened an investigation about whether the university had potentially violated their standards about academic freedom and undue external influence. And I think that's mm-hmm. what you're talking about, exactly. Professor Lang. Mm-hmm. And then pretty quickly, DeSantis got the legislature to pass a bill that colleges and universities will be required to change their accreditors at the end of each accreditation cycle. And that's a process that, according to news reports I've read, it can take as long as 10 years. So that same law actually also changes the process of reviewing professors' tenure, which is a provision that your union has objected to and I believe is in litigation about now. Um, So... Um, I think what you're saying is this is not as simple as just the university's accreditation Mm -hmm. 
uh, agency. It's all the accreditations down the line for the various professions that licensure is required. And that's very, that's very interesting. Well, if you're familiar, and I don't want to get into a lengthy conversation about how accreditation works, but when you say an agency accredits you, um, they are us, is, is the way I'd put it, because the accrediting agencies are made up of the members who are accredited. That's They make their own standards and things. So when you talk about SACs, it's made up of the Southern institutions that are members. So you're kind of attacking yourself or your own standards. And a lot of these special accreditations use the SACs or other regional accrediting agency as an umbrella. For example, and I'll just give you one example, AACSB, which is the business accrediting agency. It's not on the Department of Education list of approved agencies, if you look on the website. Um, it, It gets its power because in its standards, it is covered by the umbrella of SACs for faculty qualifications and and, and some of these things. So if you got rid of SACs, and I'm not sure what you would replace it with, you may end up now have shot your business accreditation down. And something we don't, nobody really is sure. Nobody's sure. Yeah. But also, you may just wind up being yeah. a pariah among your peers, right? Yeah. right? You're, you're nodding, Professor right. Connolly. What do you think about yeah, that? absolutely. I mean, it's not just a pariah, right? It's that an unaccredited univer- an unaccredited university is not going to the degree isn't going to mean the same thing it's not going to be taken and these accreditation i mean steve knows more about it than i do but they're not obligated to do so if we if usf says or, or all the institutions because of the law say well we can't use sacs next time we're going to use there's not another and a lot Joe's accreditation right, that's agents. not going to matter and the other it's going to be somebody who's <laughs> like some crony of DeSantis who starts his own accreditation right. agency <laughs> and gets hired to 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 examine the university right. system and in one, Florida and one of the big issues right for especially for students but for all of us but certainly for the students is that the the value of their degree certainly comes from the stature of the university the programs they're in and all these things but it's because we're an accredited university right. there are unaccredited universities out there their degrees are not the same. Right. right? And none of these institutions are, are required to take us on and taking on accrediting a, a large, you know, 50,000 student university or the whole SUS um, is not something that these other accreditors that are large enough to do it are just going to jump at the opportunity <laughs> to take on to know that then the next time you're going to leave and go to another accreditor. Right. Every 10 years, according yeah. to the law, yeah. at, um, right. at least. And Senate Bill, uh, it's Senate Bill 7044. Right. It says specifically that it allows the state of Florida to sue the accrediting agency. Right. And so I'm sitting right. here thinking, Who's gonna like, why sign would up for I that? want to right. try and get <laughs> myself into an accrediting uh, of, a, of an institution that's going to now politically sue me. Right. I, I, right. <laughs> All right. Well, you're listening to WMNF, and we're talking with Professor Brian Connolly, a history professor at USF, and Professor Steve Wang, who's an education professor and the president of the faculty union at USF, about academic freedom. We are WMNF 88.5, and you can join our conversation by calling us at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813 I have a call here from Nob, it looks like. Uh, Nob, you're on the air. 
Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I'm going to give a, a different perspective. And oh, great. I support this DeSantis, the governor, but for a reason that I don't think anyone in your group would probably appreciate or understand. So just give me a minute to explain. When I was in college, it was very common for you know various students groups to form associations, you know, Chinese Student Association, Indian Student Association, Jewish Student Association, sure. and so many others. And But obviously, one could never form like a white student association. The university would crack down on it. The assumption being by, you know, older liberal white males that tend to dominate the universities when I was a university student, that, oh, that would be the in-group. Everybody wanted to be in that group. So therefore, that one, that particular grouping is not allowed, but every other possible combination you can think of is acceptable. And I feel we'll never be a raceless society until we accept that if a group of white students want to stay together and form an association, just like all the other ethnic minorities or religious minorities or sexual orientation minority groups want to do, let it be. And, and let the free market decide who wants to join what. And if there's another association called the Open Student Society that accepts everyone from all backgrounds, let it be. Well, isn't the Open Student Society the, the university one. itself? I mean, isn't that... No, but my point, no, but my point is that what inadvertently happens by trying to reduce racism, people in authority actually encourage it. In, they don't mean to, but they have a group thing from the 1960s where they make the assumption, you know, the younger generation... Wait, Nav, if I hear you correctly, you're objecting to to what people call, like, identity politics. You don't think people should be able to form identity groups and, and advocate no, for their, no, for their I, group. No, I, I, I'm, no, I'm saying the opposite. I'm oh? saying if, if a student... So, like, for example, if, say, if 10 white students say, you know what, we want to just mingle with each other and we want to form an association... The university won't tolerate it. They'll crack down on saying that's not acceptable because the assumption they're making is that if a group of white students form an association, somehow everybody wants to be part of that group, and then that's discriminatory. Uh, all right. I think we got your point. Let me ask uh, one of my guests to respond. Uh, Dr. Lang, you, well, you want to respond? Kinda... Thank you for calling, Nob. I mean, I, maybe I'm a product of the 60s and 70s, too, but we had fraternities and they were almost exclusively middle upper class white males and i don't think we did we the only time you cracked down on them is if they were hazing somebody and they died of alcohol poisoning but <laughs> other than that i mean they were free to to have a variety of things so it, i don't know if that's what the caller would refer to but i don't think the university ever cracked down on anyone unless it was causing some legal problem for the university yeah, I mean, I think it's not the identify the the group identification of a group yeah. that's an issue. It's what do they advocate? Yeah, I think right. that you know, two of the ways I would look at it is you know, on the one hand, you know, you you hear this kind of line of thinking frequently, oh. um, but I I've really never seen evidence that a group of white students trying to form a student organization are actually stopped from doing it. Um, but the other thing I'd say is that. Um, I think it does, you know, gloss over the differential um, power dynamics in race itself, right? That, you know, whiteness is 
it has been the dominant. Many, many groups are implicitly white groups on many, many campuses, um, mm-hmm. especially predominantly white institutions. So, um, you know, I, I think it's often a, a sort of phantom that that white students are not allowed to form groups. Well, you know, it's interesting that in passing this law, Senate Bill Mm -hmm. 7044, uh, which is this whole education reform bill, uh, that took effect just uh, this month, July 1st, actually. You know, DeSantis, when he signed the bill, he, he said the quiet part out loud. He said, quote, it's all about trying to make these institutions more in line with what the state's priorities are. That's what DeSantis said during the bill signing event in the villages of all places. Um, and the state's priorities, he meant let's be honest, are his priorities. I mean, shades of what? Louis the Fourteenth, l'état c'est moi, right? <laughs> the state, I am the state and the state is me. Um, because he said about tenure, uh, DeSantis said, I think what tenure does, if anything, it's created more of an intellectual orthodoxy. And DeSantis says the changes to the tenure system in Florida will prevent professors from what he calls, quote, indoctrinating students in certain ideologies. Well, but, he's he's up against some real interesting legal uh, fights. The um, Every SUS institution has had an article or has an article um, related to what we call multi-year um, um, ongoing evaluation and appointments. We've had it in our contract for decades. It's negotiated, and it's in the contracts of other institutions, even though the language is a little different. So we already have faculty who um, are are, uh, evaluated annually. And we already have all kinds... I mean, we're evaluated by students and every other kind of thing. But this clause or article has been there for a long, long time, and it's negotiated by the Board of Trustees, which is the agent of the state. Mm-hmm. And so the question is now, can in, in the state constitution, the state legislature does not control the university system? Even though you're right, the governor's appointed 14 of the 17 Board of Governors members <laughs> right. right now. So, so um, they're, they're going, but they're going through the Board of Governors because the, uh, it's almost impossible for them to directly legislate a change in the contract. That, Which is yeah. pretty much why he took over the Board of <laughs> Governors, exactly. right? So that's I mean, what they're trying to do. But we have contracts and they go, they go out a year or two years, three years, and they already have this in them. Now, you know, tenure doesn't prevent a faculty member from loss of a job, you can be removed from your position for misconduct right. or incompetence or a number of, of other things or or just cause and we'll let the lawyers de- define what all that is. But um, but they can't be removed for political reasons. But they cannot be removed in, for political reasons. In your reasons. collective bargaining contract. <laughs> yes, right. They cannot be removed for political <laughs> right. reasons. So, you know, the passing whims of, of, of right. ephemeral politicians who serve one day and could be out of office the next cannot be used to harm you know yes. the future of of Florida's institutions well it's interesting too yeah. right when you think about um, that what are the interests of the state right and this could we I mean there's a long history to this but we could certainly go back to the comments mm-hmm. that Rick Scott made years ago when he said you know he wanted to have higher tuition for 
for majors that he thought were not integral to the state, right? right. So he named anthropology, which ironically his daughter was an anthropology major at the time. Uh, So I'll leave the Oedipal struggle there uh, aside. But but one of the ways of thinking about it, and especially about, you know, this ideological indoctrination is that as the state increasingly defines what its interests are and and they tie them entirely Mm -hmm. to high-paying jobs or what they imagine to be high-paying jobs, and they make it harder and harder for students to comfortably major in education, in the social sciences, in the humanities, right? But then the ideological indoctrination that they claim is happening, right? It's hard to fight a phantom. Right. I've yet to see this happen. I've been here at USF for 14 years. <laughs> um, but they they make the university just the humanities and social sciences, education, behavioral sciences, right? So you want to see ideological diversity. Across. I'm sure you could go over to the business school, to engineering, and you'd see different politics, right? But that's not who they're talking about. Right, right. right. I know that um, the president of the fl- uh, of your union, Professor Lang, for, mm-hmm. for the whole Florida mm-hmm. university system said, mm-hmm. tenure protects the right of faculty to teach and research honestly and accurately mm-hmm. without the threat of politicians who would fire them for doing their jobs. And it protects the rights of students to learn about whatever interests them without being told by big government how to live their lives. That's what he said when this bill was signed. And it's interesting to me that nobody ever thinks about the students who want to learn, you know, who want to learn the history of the civil rights struggle, for example, in an accurate way. Right. Well, it's interesting to me that the governor, in my view, was one of the biggest insulters of the tenure system. Our tenure system requires a lot of scholarly work and review by peers and and administrators and all kinds of votes all the way up the line in order to gain tenure you have to earn it and it's it involves it of a, a terminal degree and stuff so then the governor came in and appointed a medical doctor <laughs> as his chief surgeon and then kind of demanded that the University of Florida provide the board of trustees provide tenure to that person without what the University the of Florida would review, tell you is an appropriate right. review. And and this is a clearly scientific uh, field, and the person may have credentials, but I think that we have a system. The system is protected by contract. It's been there a long time, and it's not an easy system. Uh, it, it's it's uh, you can you can look over time. I think at the University of South Florida, our statistics show that of people who start at the University of Florida, South Florida, on a tenure track, probably around thirty forty percent of them are tenured or still employed seven years later. It's not even the majority that are still there. They leave for different reasons. But right. and but I think that. Um, uh, then you know you make this law about the system and and imposing some kind of 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 new standard on the system but then you turn around and 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 demand that the university of florida give someone who's clearly a political appointee a a, a job with tenure yeah it diminishes it the value no of tenure right. doesn't it yeah. when you yeah. know bigfoot can just come in and <laughs> say you get tenure <laughs> right and i th- you know i think the other thing about teaching and 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 teaching and research uh and and tenure and and one of the things to really keep in mind that we're also in a system where a lot of ideas of academic freedom have long been attached to tenure and i find tenure very important but we are also in a system not just in florida but nationally in which most faculty are not tenured or tenure track right they're less and less, less every day so right? less than 50% at usf certainly 
nationally, about 75% of faculty are not in any tenurable position right. at all, right? And so that puts them in a much more precarious position, but it also leads us to thinking about what is um, what is responsible teaching for me and how that lines up with these laws now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if I, I don't, as a, as a scholar, as a, as a historian, I can talk about all the different ways we can think about the causes of the Civil War, right? But all of them involve slavery. I don't have to entertain in my class that slavery was not important to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody's teaching about the Holocaust, they can look at all kinds of ideas, but they don't have to entertain Holocaust deniers, right? Free speech, people can say that outside of the classroom. I don't have to entertain. Well, I don't know. Is that is that true? Have you received guidance that tells you, for example, that you know, not necessarily the Holocaust denier, because we now have a law that mandates teaching <laughs> of the Holocaust as well, right. which is a, the flip side yeah. of this. Don't do. That's the do do side of of DeSantis's takeover of education. But you know, have you received some guidance about how to? navigate this new law in terms of content in the classroom? We we have received draft guidelines mm-hmm. from the Office of General Counsel mm-hmm. and they've emphasized the word objective. Um, and I, I think I see why. I, I, I really do feel like, um, you know, there's lots of reasons to keep a skeptical and critical eye on all university institutions and administrations in my mind. But I do think the universities are caught between a rock and a hard place, right? They, they're, mm-hmm. as, as Steve said earlier, about funding, about trying to comply with the law, whether they like the law or not. I have not found that they've intervened at the level of content yet in the guidelines, right? Well, it's just an effective mm-hmm. two weeks ago, less right. than two so weeks that's ago. the big question. So, like I said, for me, I'm going to continue to teach the way I've been teaching, right? And I don't feel like, and I don't think my students feel like I'm trying to indoctrinate them. Mm-hmm. But I think as I teach, you know, I teach 19th century U.S. history, so I teach slavery and, and race and, and, and civil war and these kind of things all the time. Um, for me, it's an intellectual responsibility, right? And an ac- and, and academic freedom protects me, and I'm still going to proceed with that. So slavery was integral to the Civil War and to 19th century history and to capitalism, and there's no way to get around it, right? Mm. So do you think mm-hmm. that you're going to have to go through some sort of like syllabus review now that you mm-hmm. never had to go through before? Well, we do uh, for so we do now have to have all of our syllabi available online, publicly searchable by keyword. Uh oh. Um, th- so for this <laughs> Hello, year, moms of liberty, moms right, for liberty. Right. So for this year, it has only applied. They've interpreted it as applying only to a certain set of state general education courses, but it looks like over the course of time, it's going to apply mm-hmm. to about ninety-five percent of courses. Um, and then someone will be able to search a key and so search keywords. So my concerns, and I think many faculty's mm-hmm. concerns, I'm sure Steve shares mm-hmm. this, is that um, you know if I'm teaching, you know historical methods, we're going to read Marx, we're going to read you know critical race theory, we're going to read a variety of things, right? And that's because I think they're important because I think that, the, but they're also integral to the history of the discipline and understanding how historical mm-hmm. knowledge works, right? Um, in theory, that is fine as long as I'm not indoctrinating the students according to the law. But if they're just keyword searching and they see Marx, right. they, and, and the people looking at it just assume it's indoctrination, then... What's it, your defense, Professor? My, you know, my, my defense would be that I am, I'm teaching, that I'm allowing us to think critically about the ideas that we're, we're dealing mm-hmm. with. I think critical is one of those searchable words that's yeah. going to get you in trouble. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? If we have universities <laughs> for years and decades mm-hmm. talking about 
developing critical thinking, these things, these laws that are being passed, that have been passed and are now in effect, are antithetical to critical thinking. They're antithetical right. to academic freedom. Um, and I think mm-hmm. the real question is, what are the, what are the universities really going to do come the fall mm-hmm. and the spring of this year when... You know, when the complaints will arise. Yeah, I mean, what, what are you hearing about this, uh, Professor well, Lang? There's one thing, I guess I'm going to, um, well, you're right. They ask us to put disclaimers on our syllabi and things like this. Um, and I, I assume a lot of faculty will, will do that just to comply with the institution. Um, I think that the, the, two, the, two, the creep, I'm going to call it creep, that bothers me. There's one issue that's really on a 2021 legislative act that was not at the forefront, but yet we're in a battle with the University of South Florida over it now. What's that? And that is what we, um, that they reinterpreted legislatively a code of ethics for educators in 2021. And part of that included a um, component of outside activities. Now, we, for many, many years, have had in our contract that if I'm going to engage in outside activities that specifically conflict with the university. That means that's that yeah. wasn't that the testimony right, situation? Right. That was part of it. Yeah. Was the testimony. But maybe I have a business and the business does contracts that have some kind of conflict with USF or something. On something outside of my assigned duties is the idea. Well what they do is they reinterpreted that and so starting in twenty twenty one, the University of South Florida asked all the faculty to fill out an online form called e and you're supposed to put your activities on there, but they included a whole lot of new things. They included uh, anything that you have expertise in. So if you are a PE professor and you coach your child's soccer team, or if you are teach measurement like I do, and you do a survey for, the, for your church <laughs> congregation, now you're supposed to Disclose this. Uh, also, we had another example. One of the faculty was was um, re- a reviewer for a journal for no money, just as a volunteer, reviewing journal articles. And then the journal publisher sent them a note and said, by the way, because you were a good reviewer for us, we're going to give you a free subscription to the journal for next year. Well, he didn't even ask for that, but now he's been compensated, but he didn't turn it in. I see. And so the new law says that if you violate this law, you can be removed from your job without pay and without representation and without due process on the spot. So wait, wait, is it if you didn't disclose compensation or you didn't disclose your... You, what you did for the outside the activity entity. or the compensation, oh, well. and so what's happened? Well, how do people do address that when they haven't been contacted yet to be an expert witness in a in a oh, legal case? For absolutely, example? it's 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 caused problems. We I only have two cases right now at USF, but it did cause problems for two faculty. And so what you end up with is you end up with this thing. Obviously, our contract includes due process, wine garden right. rights to representation, et cetera, et cetera. The four or five. So we did file. A grievance we don't know where it's going to go well that's interesting because we think that these kinds of creep things that they put in are kind of interpretive but they are the frog is getting warmer the water is getting hotter hotter. let me bring in mike in sarasota to our conversation mike you're on the air we're talking about academic freedom with our two usf professors what do you have to add well thank you for taking my call sure i would observe i think this discussion has has evolved away from the, the basics, and you know, I would offer, uh, uh, and you're talking a lot about tenure, which I will address as a second point, but 
first about the Stop Woke Act. As I understand it, uh, the main purpose of the Stop Woke Act is to prevent a classroom instructor from discussing some historical event and then and then pinning blame for that on an individual member of the class. For instance, you can't talk about the Holocaust and then say, okay, there's a German transfer student in here. He is to blame. Or you can't talk, discuss slavery and say, oh, there's a southern uh, male student here. He is to blame. Uh, my second point is when you're talking about tenure and saying that it's not political, uh, you, I think you need to realize that, yes, tenure has been politicized all, uh, throughout uh, the country and even in Florida. And I would offer as evidence of this Norman Finkelstein from De- DePaul University. Remember Ward Churchill, who was from somewhere out in the Midwest, but he, he, wrote, a book after, he wrote a book after 9-11 where he described a lot of the victims as little icons. And then he was thrown out of the university. And then there's Glade Whitney from FSU, who's a psychologist, and he's done studies which have shown that if, you know, en masse, that the white students perform better on, on or white, white, white subjects perform better on intelligence tests than black, black, black subjects. And so it's a very minor difference, and it doesn't say anything about individuals. But again, he has suffered a lot of, uh, now he, he wasn't thrown out, but he suffered a lot of, of, of blowback. And, 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 and of course, he, all these people, their careers are limited. So I think we can't make this blanket statement that the, the Stop Woke Act is suddenly introducing politics into, into tenure and, and into professors' careers. Okay, thank you for your comments. That's very interesting. Let me ask our guests to respond. Appreciate your call, Mike. Um, what do you think about that? Well, so I'll, I'll start uh, with the second point but and then get to the first really, really quickly. Uh, I think the second point, so, certainly I don't think either one of us, any of us meant to imply that tenure has not been politicized. It, it actually exists in fact, in the United States because of a series of political acts. I think that one of the ways of thinking about it is that the aim of tenure or one of the aims of tenure is to protect the kind of education, even if it, even if it disagrees, um, the ideas that are being circulated in research or teaching with the, aim, the so-called aims of the state, right? So, and, and Norman Finkelstein is, is one, one example. There's lots, I mean, one thing I would say to, to distinguish though is that there's a way in which I'd say some Faculty have taken criticism of what they're doing. Um, some or, or or some sort of conservative lines of thought have suggested that you know people shouldn't be criticized for the idea. I mean, you can criticize people for their ideas. They shouldn't necessarily lose their job unless they're unfit. For the first one, I'd say that I think that that's an overly narrow interpretation of the Stop Woke Act. It, it it's not about. Um, I, you know, I, I'd be hard pressed to think of finding a faculty member who's teaching slavery and then pointing, pointing to a southern to, student right. saying, "I it's think his that fault. that um, overstates or limits what what it really is intended to do." But I would be remiss if I let the show conclude without talking about the survey, the survey that's now uh, you know in yes. in place. According to um, uh, the DeSantis administration, intellectual freedom surveys need to be completed by. Uh, faculty and students at, in the university system, um, and basically, um, you know, asking respondents to state their gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, with you know, really unusual specificity. And you know, the the there's a concern that these surveys are going to be used to basically. Well, eventually figure out who needs to go to a re-education camp (laughs) because they are, you know, politically focused, too. Um, What do you think about these surveys? Well, I think they're 
there's a possibility that the state of Florida, you know, we have performance-based metrics of how many students graduated and how long it took them to graduate. So my question would be, are they going to hold up the University of North Florida and say that they're better or from some political perspective than University of West Florida or something because their students had a different value or view or or con, you know, I, I think that's kind of crazy, um, and that's the potential danger of that with those highly loaded up questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, I, from what I have heard, there was a relatively low, low response rate across the state. Um, but certainly, yeah, there was massive concerns. That I, I'm no expert in how surveys are created in any sense, but from what I understand, this was a particularly poorly constructed survey. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but it's a real concern, and it also gets to the way in which I think the state, and not just the Florida, but nationally as well, certain people look at knowledge. Right? It's uh, most of us, whether people are registered as Democrats or Republicans, I think rarely set out to be like, "I want to make you a Democrat." <laughs> you know, it's just not how knowledge works. Um, but that certainly is the way that these kind of surveys are being put put forward. Yeah, apparently uh, the state hired uh, Florida State University's Institute of Politics to help draft this survey, to help create this survey, and then they fired them when they started uh, questioning uh, what the state's requirements for the survey were and what and how the state wanted the survey to be drafted and conducted. Um, and uh, I, you know, that's of some concern too. You know, it was taken over by apparently some state bureaucrats who finished the project, mm-hmm. and in their own view, they weren't, you know, didn't have any expert expertise in survey creating either. Um, and and I think that you know that that's uh, you know that that mm-hmm. it, it's just so dishonest to suggest that the survey is supposed to be fostering intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity, which is what the state is claiming, when in fact, just the mere existence of the survey has a chilling effect on people. And then they say, well, it's voluntary. You don't have to complete it if you don't want to. Well, don't you think there's going to be a list of the people who don't complete it too? (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to have some, it's going to suggest something about those people? Right. And one one of the things I think is really striking about the survey and, and the stop, the language of the Stop Woke Act is that there's a way in which these kind of practices, and this has been documented by, by numerous historians of, of the, new, the so-called new right and, and modern conservatism, have essentially appropriated the language of mid-20th century civil rights and, and, and you know, leftist liberal thought and, and then deployed it for their own ends, right? So intellectual diversity and viewpoint freedom um, it's been a traditionally liberal concept, right? And, and it's, now they're, it's and, being co-opted. And even if you read through, you know, the stop, the so-called Stop Woke Act, right? HB seven, um, it it kind of appropriates the language of sort of um, you know multiculturalism and diversity, um, and the language that you see there, two very different ends, right? But if you're not reading closely, some of it. You know, sounds like well, okay. I, you you shouldn't be racist in your class. Well, it's very 1984, isn't it? Like <laughs> you know, and sort of you know, 
work makes freedom, right. Arbeit yeah. macht frei, and you know, it's just, <laughs> it's very, it's it's really a, a co-optation of this language of mm-hmm. of of liberalism, mm-hmm. you know, to suggest uh, mm-hmm. the exact opposite. Right. Well, and in Florida, you know, it, the the thing that bothers me about the l- lengthy list of things that are prohibited <laughs> in the Woke Act. Um, I guess prohibitive is the way to say it. Um, one of the benefits of, of working in higher ed in Florida is the incredible diversity that we have in this state. Because I have been in some other states with less diversity in the public schools and higher ed. And in this particular state, we have some large proportion of our students that were born outside of the United States. We have all nationalities. We have lots of different race and gender things it it encourages discussion debate and and growth and maturity of the students when you discuss diversity or 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 it may be a history lesson or it may be a a standard to be a school teacher and and i think that what what they're doing here is just almost putting a damper on one of the parts of the institution which is probably one of the stronger parts of it which is really crazy, yeah. Because this this is a state that has an opportunity to have some of the most diversity in higher ed that there is available. It's, it's like a wholesale yeah. attack on diversity, though, yeah. as having the values that right. you just related. You yeah. know, it's like a wholesale <laughs> attack. Like we don't want diversity here. Like we're against it. You know, because it does <laughs> discourage. You know, so much yeah. of that type <laughs> of informal sharing and right. and. Uh, and and that type of thing. I have a question from one of our listeners. Kip wants to know what happens if you don't fill out the survey. Do you know? Have you gotten any guidance on that? Uh, well, as of now, it was not a mandatory sur- survey. It had to be distributed, but there was no requirement that you respond to it. So um, we'll, we'll see <laughs> when they send it out next year again. They're going to do it every year. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's not supposed to be consequences. And what if everybody fills it out in a way that is, hmm, let's say, non-serious? <laughs> right. <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> like, you know, religion, uh, flying spaghetti monster right. aficionado. <laughs> I mean, you know, what if it comes in like that? Yeah, I, it's unclear what they, you know, imagine they're going to do with this. I mean, yeah. we can, we can, it's not hard to imagine what their aim was, but um, mm-hmm. it, it, it'll be interesting to see where they think they're going to go with, with their, uh, I think, very low response rate. And yeah, what would, what would happen if everybody's sort of dishonest? All right. I, I want to thank my guests today, Professor Brian Conley and Professor Steve Lang, both from USF, for joining us today to talk about the current issues around academic freedom. If you joined us late in the show, feel free to go back and listen on demand from the Midpoint Archives at WMNF.org on the app or find us at WMNF Midpoint wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank my WMNF volunteer activist, Jessica Green on the soundboard and Barbara Fling, who answered phones for us. And as always, I thank you, the WMNF listeners, for your interest and support of Midpoint. If you enjoyed the show and missed our summer fundraiser, you're in luck. There's still time to make a generous donation at WMNF.org slash donate. And please direct your donation to MPW for Midpoint Wednesday. Stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss. Up next, we are WMNF Tampa. Tampa.